what is going on everybody hope you are having a wonderful week so far podcast time today michael julian aka mj um i've i was introduced to mj during lockdown on social media um through my management and we've got talking and we've we've met a couple of times a bunch of times and kind of built up a a really nice relationship and my uh, mj's uh history is goes back a long way with dance music um he's was pretty much one of the main guys behind the electric zoo in new york um he is pretty much a marketing mastermind genius he's also runs all of Elrose in the whole of the United States and North America. And he's also started a community-based kind of project called Grey Area. Um, his insight to the industry is amazing. Um, he's a lovely guy, and I just absolutely love this conversation. So I'll stop talking, and let's get going. Without further ado, MJ. MJ. And we are live, man. How's it going? Good, good, man. Good to see you. How's life? Life is good. You know, we are facing this uh, time where no one knows what tomorrow brings. So uh, as much as uncertainty excites me, I'm a little bit tired of being excited all the time. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's like one day everything's happening the next day nothing's happening and then the next day everything's happening the next day we don't know what's happening it's kind of strange right we've we've not lived a life like this for a long time yeah yeah and from where i am you know i'm see i've seen trends before when things happen in europe america was kind of behind and and now what's happening in europe is really it depends on the country but i don't actually know what's gonna happen in america you know right now with everything that's going on i'm just so happy to see people are out and the festivals are taking place and it doesn't seem like there is any bad news in terms of the events being super spreading or anything like that you probably have noticed in the past literally a week massive amount of venues and festivals have changed their uh guidance on who can enter Mm. like major change and so it went from, at least where I am, it went from, uh, hey, you can separate the people if they're vaccinated versus vaccinated mm. to um, let everyone in if you're under a certain amount of people to now you have to be vaccinated or tested. I think mm. that's what is in New York and, and a lot of other cities anyways. And, you know, uh, what's, your thoughts on, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that whole kind of thing? Well, listen, I stayed away from politics my whole life. Yeah. And then I kind of got into it during the election. It was, you know, very heated. Honestly, I, I lost a lot of people who were, I thought my friends is just because there was some things that were beyond anything I can accept, you know, mm. from from other people. It was just inhuman, uh, which is sad. But um, when it comes to vaccines, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, right? Mm. I was going to be one of those who waited a long time until I see how others are doing before yeah. I commit to putting something in my body, especially, you know, my son has a condition that, you know, it 
made us research some things through some years yeah. in the past four, five, six years. And I don't really trust vaccines in general because I don't know what's in there. With that yeah. said, vaccines have saved the planet from pandemics before. And obviously there are vaccines that uh, make people healthy. So my mindset was like, look, uh, I'm going to stay away from it until I got a call from a friend in March who said, listen, uh, someone is not going to show up to the appointment today. They have their vaccines. You're not going to be taking anyone. So do you want to go and do it? And just like that, in a matter of two minutes, I just decided I'm just going to go and do it. And yeah. I went and I got it. So my point of view is people should get vaccinated mm -hmm. because they can save lives. They can save their life. They can save someone else's life if they're the one that are carrying it. Yeah. But you know, I can't, I don't judge people based on their preferences. So I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough topic. What's, what's your thoughts on, because if anyone doesn't know, you are like a huge member of the team at Electric Zoo. Um, you run pretty much all of the Elro parties in America. You, you have, you deal with a lot of people on you entertain a lot of people. You're the kind of brains behind entertaining a lot of people and getting a lot of people put together. What's your thoughts on the whole, you must be vaccinated to enter a venue? You know, that's, that's what I was getting to before. I, I don't feel like on one side, I don't feel it's right to tell people that they must put something in their body. But on, if, if, if not vaccinating is the reason why the virus keeps living, then of course, I can't, you know, but go vaccinate, right? Yeah. And, and because I don't know the facts, it's just such a delicate subject for me because I don't know the facts. Mm. I, I don't have an opinion formed. You know, yeah. I do want people to get vaccinated for their own good. I mean, we've lost people. We know people that were young, our age, mm -hmm. people who grew up with that just died. And you know what? Here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, none of them, first of all, thought that they were in real danger. And none of them knew that they were talking to someone who had a virus yeah. when they got it, right? It's It's not like they... Uh, people cough, and so you know not to come close. So, so you know, it's 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 a very delicate subject for me. I want everyone to be healthy. Yeah, I understand yeah. people that will come in and say that for health reasons they cannot get vaccinated. But if they are healthy, and at this point, you know, how many people around the world got vaccinated? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I I think I think if this keeps virus away, then we should support that moment. Yeah. Totally, man. Totally. Um, that was a fucking depressing start to this podcast. Jesus I just, you Christ. know, it gets political. It's, this is the problem, yeah, right? This is the, and I think this is more in America that it gets more political over anything else. And I'm so, I don't give a shit about politics, if I'm honest with you. It doesn't really, I think for me as an, as an artist and somebody that's kind of in the public eye quite a lot, I stay very... I have my opinions, but I don't talk about those opinions to anyone at all. Even some of my friends I don't talk to because I don't want to create a divide in communities. And I think the one thing that we all have in this music industry is a community that we all need to stick together and all need to give people 
a, a way to actually escape reality. And at this moment in time, reality is pretty fucking depressing in the grand scheme I, of things. You're absolutely right. And and that's that's exactly what I always say. Like we unite people on the dance floor. Yeah. So that people so that we don't have you know, it doesn't matter your race, your age, nothing matters, right? We all come together. This is the beautiful thing about what we do. Partially why I love it. I could never see that people will not dance together because of their political views. So I don't go and look there. But at the same time, quietly me, I wonder sometimes when the events go by, are they letting the events go because they want to encourage people to get vaccinated because they would allow vaccinated people in mm. and not allow unvaccinated in? Is that a, a way to get people vaccinated? Is that a political move? Or is this really coming from the doctors and the health experts that are saying this has to be done? And I don't have the answer. Yeah, I watched a really interesting thing on Instagram today. And it was of... It's, I don't really want to say it. But it was this lady that was a biochemist. She 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 has a PhD in biology and vaccines and stuff like that. And it was an eye-opener, put it that way. It was a huge eye-opener. And then for me, it was like, wow, this is kind of... We're not being told the truth from the people that are leading. Are you still there? I see you. Oh, I lost you, dude. Can you see me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they cut out for a little bit. It it was just I'll send it to you after this because it was kind of an eye opener and I was like, okay, like I probably I don't know, I think the thing that I really struggle with at this moment in time is that we live in a free society, right? We we we're supposed to live in a free world and with that free world we're allowed choice. Uh, like I'm fully vaccinated. It's not even about that, but I think it's where does it go from there there on? How yeah. like and I think that's the thing is I'm all for people being fit and healthy, but I'd rather people be fit and healthy than worry about being vaccinated. Like uh, let's talk about actually being fit and healthy as a nation. Let's talk about how how do we get better as human beings? How do we have better mental health? How do we have better physical health? Our diets, everything. Like how that's not being talked about at all. And I think... Exactly. The shit that goes into food, right? Exactly. The, the, the amounts of, of sugar and chemicals that's everywhere. The, 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 the fact that in this country, at least so many people are overweight and have diabetes just because they buy food. Mm. And, they, you know, and, and this, is, this is the thing. They, people go and they buy food that are pre-packaged, pre-frozen. They put it in the microwave. They're eating chemicals. Mm. Yet, they come in and have a propaganda social media campaign that the government is injecting them with some crap. I yeah. mean, like, right? I You have to be... I have to make sure for myself, when I speak to people, that they have the right mindset of why they are not 
vaccinating and why they're against mandatory vaccinations. Like mm. I have to understand that they have real reasons behind it and that it's not just because literally they're bored. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, cause we are not during world war two. We have food, we have roof of our heads. Like we have everything. And, you know, sometimes people just need something to argue or make a debate on. And, you know, when everything else is pretty good, well, here you go, go and argue with, vaccines or whether they're not good for you or whether they're good for you my stand is i'd like for this virus to go away i think if yeah. it goes away we win and if it doesn't go away we lose so if getting vaccinated helps it go away then yeah by all means i'm gonna support that but i cannot tell any human who feels that they're in danger from getting vaccinated they they have to do it i yeah. don't think that Anybody can or should. Mm, totally, man. Totally. Um, I want to talk about the first party you ever threw and you were ever part of kind of being involved in. Because I, 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 I'm really interested in the history of what you've done over the years. Um, and You know, I was, I, I'll, uh, I was always a part of a team. Always. Uh, for different reasons. First of all, I'm myself like an ADHD brain, I can't really do one thing and be satisfied. I have to do a lot of things. Yeah. Being a, a part of partnership is, is good because then you have a lot of good people and everyone's working together. So in my career, right, in, mm. in, in producing live events, I've always been a part of a big crew. So it was never all on my shoulders. I'll be the first to admit. But partially, I think that's why it lasted so long and I stayed. Mm. If it was all on my shoulders with the amount of stress and, and losing money all myself, <laughs> I don't know if I would have stayed. But the very first party, we threw it at a Jewish uh, catering hall. I think I was a senior in high school. I definitely was not an electronic music party, but it was just, uh, you know, in the neighborhood and we had like three, 400 people show up. Uh, I wasn't a club kid at all. I like good food, gambling, you know, sports, uh, watching sports, uh, more so than playing. Uh, but I, you know, I went to to Tunnel. I, I'm pretty sure Tunnel was my real first like club experience. Mm. And uh, I York, got it. Right? Uh, what? In New York? Yeah, I went to Tunnel in New York. And I mean, like a lot of my friends at that time were going to Limelight and Club USA. But my first real kind of night was in Tunnel. And I went there and I got it right away. I'm like, okay, this is where like the the, the misfits, like everybody who wants to fit in, they go here. They mm -hmm. go there because everyone's on the same level, yeah. right? And I, I said to myself, how do I work in this place? And so I figured out quite quickly that we can uh you know we, we had friends who've been running the clubs and they said hey you know you can open the guest list and we'll pay you i don't know three dollars a person and the way it works is you know people have to send you the names and so we had beepers and people had to beep us and we would go to like a pay phone and we would put the, the sense in and then we would like call back and then we would get the names and then i had to call my friend or beep my friend who was at their parents house faxing the guest list to the club mm, faxing wow. like sending faxes <laughs> over and when people showed up 
it wasn't a tally guest list. When people showed up, they had to show an ID and they had to be crossed off. So it couldn't be like, uh, we'll see. It had to be Will Clark. Yeah, yeah. And it couldn't be like plus unlimited. It had to be exactly how many people show. I don't even remember if we were doing a lot of pluses. I think the idea was like, we need everyone's names. Maybe I, I don't remember. But that was uh, in in like maybe 1996, mm -hmm. 1997. And then what became a, a, a big uh, changer for me is when we were in about 2000, we were in this club called Exit, which, which is in New York Terminal 5 now. And that venue has been around forever. This is where Mirage and uh, Carbon were. I think Puff Daddy was the like head promoter of Carbon. It, it, it's got history, that building, where Terminal 5 is. And the big change there was I was maybe 20 years old and the, 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 the partners of the party, they have created the system where, you know, the more your team produces, the more money you make. And I love money. So what I figured out is that instead of me being a promoter, because I wasn't the guy who would go and ask friends to use my guest list. I don't like doing that. So what I've decided to do was stand at the front and I would spot big groups. And so as they consistently would go to the club, I would remember them. And then I would talk to somebody from the group and said, hey, here's the deal. The 12 of you are coming here now and you're all paying. Well, what if like eight of you were paying? Yeah. The other three would get a free ticket and you, the main guy, I will pay you $10 per each of the person that you bring. And I want to do that because I want to train you how to become a promoter because all these guy kids will go into colleges. So, yeah. you know, we got them the business cards, the flyers, and they started working. And very, very quickly, like I would say in six, seven months, we've built a monstrous team where, you know, our team would sell, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of tickets and the next biggest team would sell like 11. Yeah. So that really helped me build a team and understand that I can mentor promoters and I can teach them how to promote. And they were the popular kids. Mm -hmm. Like they yeah. really had people who would trust their uh, point of view. So if they went to the club, they went to the club with them. Mm -hmm. And from there, we've built a team. And once we build a team, I uh, have kind of, build the steers of you know lieutenants if you will and yeah. then i've built more lieutenants and the next thing you know we had this huge team and we were able to do big venues on our own but there was always street teams like yeah. my thing was always driven by street teams until um around 2004 i have you know new york nightlife kind of been down september 11 happened and you know it, it wasn't that healthy but in 2004 things started being well again the clubs started opening up everywhere and uh, i realized that the edge i can gain would be digital mm. and so i went myself and kind of just started experimenting with everything that was available and i have pretty quickly mastered things that other promoters didn't even know existed mm. and what that allowed me to do actually is completely changed the model from relying on street promoters so if tomorrow they leave i'm fucked yeah to relying on nobody but mm. actually learning how to capture the data analyze the data and how to story tell this is a long time ago like this is before the technology and this awesome uh ads that you see now yeah. in 3d none of that existed so it had to be music driven and you know what we i had partners uh, we had a nice team and what we started focusing on uh, this was a club 
called Spirit, which was the original sound factory, believe it or not, then turned into Twilo. Mm -hmm. And then this Irish guy, Robbie Wooten, who owned Spirit in Dublin, came and opened it in New York. And, uh, you know, we we brought in some talent that back then wasn't really known in New York. I remember it was like we, we had chosen Sebias, we had Gabriel in Dresden, we had, you know, a bunch of uh, New York was very local back then, you know, it wasn't so much of international town. It was just yeah. the beginning yeah. of that era. And then um, from there we went and we would, you know, I, I like to stick in the same place for a while. Like if it's a mega club, we can build it. And then uh, at some point, maybe in 2005-ish, Mike Binger and Laura De Palma made event was already the top promoter in New York in electronic music. And they were doing, they were the ones bringing all the great talent mm. in house music. Circa Loca was already in New York from them. Like, and they started doing big production shows. So we would do like McCarran Poole, you know, by then Armin Van Buren. They were doing Carl Cox exclusively, Paul and Dyke. And Mike told me like, hey, we want to do a festival. We're, we're looking into doing more of a big production shows. Yeah. And for me, the guy who was doing, you know, three parties on a Thursday in different nightclubs in New York. And I was, I, I think, uh, you know, I was already married. We were starting to have kids. I figured that I want to stick to something that can scale mm. where we can do much bigger, much more special shows than running around the club. Yeah. And so yeah. that was the big move for me. And then it feels like yesterday, like the, the last, the next 15 years, just like zipped by. Just flew by. And then that's how Electric Zoo started, correct? Yeah. Mike and Laura had their eye on Randall's Island for a while. And the minute the island became available, they went right ahead with it. It was a two-day festival. I'm embarrassed. I don't remember if it was Friday, Saturday, or Saturday, or Sunday. I think it was Friday and Saturday the first year. Seth Draxler was the opening DJ on the main stage. Just put it in perspective. Yeah, That was the mindset. I mean, Mike and Laura had their ear on the ground, the music that they, they were, you know, the seers of music, but that's where EDM kicked in. You know, the year after that was 2009, I want to say, and this mm -hmm. is where, you know, David Guetta and Black Eyed Peas and like all of that, just, you know, it, it, we've come to an era where the producers behind the music were the big names and yeah. the vocalists, you know, were next to them. And we just got into this place. It was the right place, right time. And we went two days, one more, and then we went three days. And then a few years later, we had sold something like 55,000 tickets a day for three different days. Mm -hmm. And we have taken over the field that we have now for Electric Zoo. And we've taken another football field that's uh, perpendicular to it. And, and, and that was just insane. We had two main stages. Yeah. And we just, I couldn't believe how the music was evolving and how it was growing. It was insane it's kind of wild how did you go from like scaling on the marketing side of things from small time club or club clubs on a weekend to a festival because it's a big fifty five thousand to a thousand is a big so scale. this is where my the time that i've invested in learning digital marketing i had a friend i have a friend gene he also was a promoter went to a digital business turn it around did really well and when the clubs started going down he welcomed me and one of the things i was able to do with him is learn from him and but more so uh, experiment mm. he would allow me to test different campaigns 
when we started Electric Zoo, I got paid very little money. Like people now complaining about getting paid. If I tell you how much money I was getting paid to work Electric Zoo, you would laugh. I mean, probably less than McDonald's workers at this point, right? <laughs> it was very little money because Mike and Laura were all in. It was their personal investment. And for me, it was just, I just, I really wanted to be a part of it. So I closed my eyes. I had other income coming in. So mm. it wasn't the end of the world. But the deal we've made is we've agreed that if I'm going to do the marketing, we're going to not do the promotions that were at that time common promotions. Yeah. So a lot of flyers, a lot of posters, and whatever comes in between. Yeah. And we will focus on digital ads. So what I've done is I started utilizing YouTube. I mean, this is a long time ago. And YouTube was so cheap for electronic music that we've served something like a billion impression, a yeah. billion impression on YouTube the first year. And as a result, a lot of people came from other cities. I don't remember what the numbers were, but I would not be very surprised if our numbers were like 40% out of towners, wow. 40%. But this is before the Baltimore's and the Philadelphia's and the Boston's and all the other nearby cities, DC's had anything of that size. Yeah. So it was more... It was special. And there was New York and Labor Day weekend, which is like the end of summer kind of unofficially, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And then the second year, once that worked, the second year, we just went all in digital. And we would create ads where we would explain to people that they're not that far. Like if you live in Philadelphia, you would see like how it's an hour and a half drive or mm. whatever it was. And we would we were the first festival that I know of, of any music to figure out how to run the ads from the artist channels. Okay. I kid you not. I remember that they had to take my email address and manually add it to a Facebook page. So if mm. Tiesto, I thought it was a great idea to build a bridge with mm. the fans yeah. by having the artist promote the festival. Back then, there wasn't that many festivals. The artists didn't mind. The challenge was there were no pages yet. Yeah. It was only personal profiles. So they had to like add my email to their personal profile and that would allow us to do this. I kid you not. I, we were the first that done it. Then, then I found out that there is a such thing called retargeting. Now, mm -hmm. mind you, Facebook and Google did not offer it yet. It didn't exist. Think about it. You couldn't retarget. So there was a third party, like another vendor that we went to. And we started doing retargeting and we were the first festival to retarget and people would come up to me in clubs or even on the street that would know me and said, dude, like I go, my wife is doing her breakfast and she's looking at recipes. <laughs> electric Zoo is there. I'm looking at the fitness site or the new site. Electric. We were everywhere. We yeah. took over the internet and because we were the only ones who were doing it. There was no competition. It's not mm. like we were showing and then all this other festival. We were the only ones and we were in people's eyes. And that's how we scaled. It was all digital. And back then it was very unique. Was it cheap then as well? Super cheap. We were getting YouTube clicks. So so on YouTube, you paid for CPC, not CPM. So yeah. we were getting clicks for like eight cents. Jeez. Yeah, and we weren't getting charged for CPMs. That's why I, I think we did a billion impression. I gotta look it up. I have the numbers. So, same so, as so, just for people to like, kind of comprehend how cheap that is. How much would a cost would a click cost now? Ten times more, yeah. maybe more, maybe twenty times more. Yeah, 
expensive. You know, so you you literally got and then and then the impressions themselves were free, mm. right? So I mean the, the the traction you were the story you could if you if back then we had video assets like we have now, it would be insane. But so what we do, we would and back then the the techno, the innovations back then what to create an ad that has a moving component in it yeah, yeah. so we had like um, my friend jeff who was our art director creative director he would do this flights like an like an you know like a plane moving and then like <laughs> all this messaging new york's electronic music festival and people would fucking click and we would get just massive amount of engagement on, mm. on youtube ads and, and and facebook ads and and then we would look at our back end and i remember for press releases after the festival, we would go on and look at the countries and states and do I swear to you, for the first four or five years, we always had every state. Yeah. We never had a year that there wasn't all 52 or whatever states, mm. counting Puerto Rico and everything else, right? And we had massive amount of countries, massive, massive. And, and partially it's because a lot of people traveled to New York and partially it was because a lot of international students from all over the country would come in. So yeah. when they would buy tickets, the zip codes or whatever countries were there. But yeah, it was a really, it was a celebration. Everybody would come and then they got to a place. I don't know what year it was, right? Maybe it was 14 where now every other city had electric zoo of their yeah. own. And SFX bought electric zoo. Mm-hmm. As they were on the shopping spree and they thought sfx thought it was a good idea when the ticket sales weren't as good as hoped to bring mystery land pink magenta little ugly stages mm. to electric zoo and put them on the field mm. and it rained on sunday for three minutes four minutes like at maybe 3 p.m 2 p.m it rained and the city didn't allow us to return because they were concerned that there was going to be very strong wings, so they had to evacuate people. And yeah. the rule is, once you evacuate people out, you can never let them back in. Mm. And that was the studio. And so we were forced to cancel the Sunday while people were still on the way. And it was a beautiful day. And uh, this came a year after we canceled the Sunday because, unfortunately, some people, you know, died. Yeah. Um, after taking fake supplements. Yeah. And I, the, the, the brand was destroyed. And so from 2015, for the next three, four years, we spent time rebuilding the brand and gaining the trust of the city and so the how, fans back. So I go, going back to that, I want to backtrack to that. How do you, uh, over the years, a lot of brands go through kind of in all walks of life, music, fashion, everything. Um, a lot of brands have peaks and troughs, right? And you have, wh when you're at the bottom, usually something bad has happened. How do you overcome that? How do you build, rebuild relationships with, with fans, with the communities, et cetera, et cetera, as a festival you, person? You, ad you admit to all the mistakes, right? So we have come out and we said, look, we know that you didn't like our Magenta stages. Mm -hmm. And we know that you didn't like that we decided to put a, a main stage, a second main stage on a small field. Mm. We understand that it caused sound bleeding. We understand that we didn't deliver the product that you guys deserved. So what we're going to do is we're going to start out this year by significantly lowering our price, which mm. we did. So we significantly lowered it. Uh, maybe remove the fee altogether to start. And we said, look, 
we are going to bring you a brand new electric zoo. I started a process of uh, creating themes for each of the festival. Mm -hmm. So it's like its own edition. Yeah. And the first one was called Electric Zoo Transformed. So we promised them a story that we're going to transform. And then we went and transformed it. And how we transformed it is by we've invested a lot of money into creating this uh, thematic stage designs for animals for Electric Zoo. They were all also, um, you know, uh, enhance the storytelling the mm -hmm. theme of the festival so we wanted to stay true to everything we do and that's what we did we went all in we it was a very challenging year we've delivered the first big festival i mean animal stage we've increased all kind of fun and activations on site we've kept the tickets low we have enhanced every challenge bathroom lines were long fixed that you know security was having some challenge we, we fixed every problem we've known we've made a huge survey i think it was like four thousand people responded mm. so we like tried to go through that data as much as possible and outline everything that people told us need to be fixed and we fixed it and then you know we didn't tell them hey we're gonna fix it come we're gonna fix it come we just stick to like hey we are transformed we're gonna transform it and the biggest marketing moment for every festival, no matter what anyone says, is the festival. I always say that. Fuck pre-sales, yeah. all of that stuff. Okay, that's support yeah. to marketing. Marketing moment is the festival. When people come there and they love the product, they leave happy and tell their friends, come with me next year, or they leave unhappy and they'll tell their friends, we're never coming back and you're not coming back. The festival is your marketing, basically. Everything else just support and driving sales and so that year 2015 the fans i think realized that we were not bullshitting and mm. you know we lost money we've invested everything in and then every year thereafter we've created a new story a new theme and uh, the talent you know we, we we started getting the trust of the artists back again and we started being more innovative with talent again and slowly but surely it, it's rebuilt but it took us three full years to really get back the trust, I think, of the fans in New York. Which I think people don't realize how expensive that costs. Yeah. <laughs> this business we're in, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's the best and the worst all in the same time. Why, why is it the best and the worst? That's the best because, you know, you get to build entertainment for people. There's no better joy for someone who's putting together a festival or a party to come in and like stay in the corner with a big smile and just watch everyone celebrating, right? Because these are people, you know, they lost their family members, someone's sick, someone's broke. This Everyone has drama all the time. And yeah. then you get them to the spot and they forget about the drama and they just smile. This is what energy is for me. Like I feel it mm. because everyone is so positive and the smile is on. For me, it's like, that's what drives me. But it's the worst because... The fans are not very forgiven, mm. to be fair. Yeah. You make one mistake, you get killed for it. You know, if it rains for 10 minutes and the city feels it's unsafe, you can lose your shirt and all your money. It's it's risky. You know, you don't spend a lot of time with your family. You know, you're on the road a lot. You don't eat as great. There's, there's a lot of challenges. It's not an easy business to be in. You know, and yeah, financially it can be rewarding, but it can also destroy you. So I think it can be rewarding, but on 
90% of the occasions is not rewarding financially with the amount of time that you put into it. That's right. I try not to think about it. I just see the big picture and I say, you know, I, yeah. I mean, like, listen, you know what? It's hard to be happy. I've learned only recently that one, one person can make a decision to be happy and just be happy. Like mm-hmm. nothing in your life can actually impact that if you really decide to just be grateful for being alive and just be happy. You know, in today's world, people are unhappy because somebody scratched their car or, you know, some crap that no one really should care about. That somehow makes people unhappy and emotional. For me, lately I've learned it, but before I didn't know how to deal with it. And this was happiness for me. Putting on shows Mm. and then being there to experience gave me that drive and happiness to balance with all the other emotional drama and everything else that was going on all the challenges that was my balance you know i would go and i would be recharged now it's a little bit different i think i've, I've learned how to not rely on that yeah but now i enjoy different things now i enjoy the fact that will clark is playing in new york to a completely sold out broken mirage and i know that at that moment I have created value for everyone. And that's what drives me now. I know that Elro has welcomed Will, and that's a good connection. I know that there were a lot of new fans in the audience who didn't know Will, and now they've met him, and that's a great connection. And I know that Will's fans came, and and they got introduced to Elro, and that's great. And Mm. the venue is packed, and they're making money, and the agents, and the management, and the artists, and all the people that have to be employed and get jobs. Yeah. And then I look at the fans. You see anybody upset? No, no one's upset. Seems like we are doing something that makes everyone happy. That's that's you know that I'm willing to take risks in my life to do that because it's very. That's the rewarding part for me now. Mm. And honestly, uh, I have a lot of opportunities to do something safer that will let me spend more time with my family. But I'm looking actively for a project that would allow me to stay, but maybe not have to travel to so many things and Mm. do so many shows. And and what I really want to do now is build a community. And I'm learning how to do it from scratch because that was, I've never had... Like, I want to launch my own. uh, We want to launch a a community that will connect people, especially starting with North American fans, where we can talk about house music. Such a simple task. I feel like in that project, we are able to connect the artists, the musicians, and the fans together. And, and that will create this strong connection. And that's what's going to build a community. And then once we have that community and, and we can prove that we're trustworthy and we're doing it for everyone's good, I want to start experimenting and creating fun shows, fun events, mm. virtual stuff, VR stuff, live stuff. You know, I really, really love working with Elro. I mean, that's... Um, How did that start? Because it's a, How did that start? My we we had a mutual friend who passed away. He tech, group texted me, me and Juanito in Netherlands, and said you guys need to meet. We said fine, but we instead met two uh, years later at, in Mexico. Uh, and I promised Juan I will come and see the show, but I didn't because I had a lot of tequila and I kind of missed it. But uh, he's laid out a plan for me on what the North American vision was, and I'm like. 
no, not a good idea. Why don't we just do New York, Miami, mm. focus on it and go to Vegas? And Juan said, I'd love to go to Vegas, but it's too, too early. It's going to take a long time for us to get there, you know? Yeah. And I said, yeah, but maybe we get lucky. And so that's what we did. We focused everything we had on New York and Miami. Um, Juan has trusted me with everything. So it's really all to his credit, right? He's allowed me not to just spend the money without return, but also to do it the way I saw it. And me and him were really on the same page. And, um, and then we got invited to Vegas. And now Vegas suddenly is becoming a big house music city too. So uh, it's good timing. But yeah, I'm really happy there. I'm so proud of Electric Zoom, how long we've done. And you know, now I'm in this place where it's not about how much money I'm going to make. Rather, it's about of can I build something sustainable? Mm. And that's what my goal today is. Like something I built today that will be rewarding in five years. That's really what I want to do. So tell us about this. What's what's the plan? What's the company? What's what's the name? What's all of this? Because um, I know you've started so, it already. Well, the thing is, so so what I've learned lately is no one no one has an idea and then just makes it work. No, it doesn't it doesn't exist? What people do. Is they have an idea and then they pivot. They pivot all the mm -hmm. time, all the time. And that's what I've been doing my whole life, by the way. Same thing. And that's why I like to do things and not have a plan. Like, where is it going? It'll, it'll go somewhere. So right now, today, the idea is that uh, we are going to slowly grow this community called Gray Area. And the idea of today is to connect North American fans with the festivals and event brands and the artists that they don't know so much, you know, uh, because they're just less known in North America. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, connect to fans in Europe and South America and Asia and other regions and connect them to American artists that yeah. are not as known there. And we feel like that's going to bring people closer. And that's all we have. We don't have any plan. There's no monetization. And this is a passion project. It's, yeah. There's no business plan. There's no investment, there's nothing. But the big idea for me was like, hey, you can do a Coachella-size house music festival easy mm -hmm. for as long as the fans who like artists like Chris Lake and Fisher, for example, and the fans who like artists like Adam Bear, and then for the fans who like artists like Eric Pritz and then Dixon, yeah. Right now, there has been a lot of degrees of separation. You can come in. It's like almost different vibes. They wear different color shirts. Yeah. But it's getting closer and closer and closer. I said, look, if we build it together, especially if it's new fans that are just learning house music now, if we train them from start, it's all one music mm. and put them together, then imagine how big of a scale we can have for those festivals. You know, Awakenings in the Netherlands, well, let's say it's eight stages. It's all house music and techno. It's one of my favorite festivals, you yeah. know, honestly, every year. And uh, I think we can put that in America and we can probably, if, we can't double the size because it's quite large, but we can do at least those numbers here. Yeah, easy. You know? I think that's really important because I think there is a huge divide in genres of music. Um, For no reason. Yeah, well, I think the reason is all superficial. Is we're cooler than you. I, I, honestly, dude, I, 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 you know, 
I don't think when I talk, so I'm going to embarrass myself a lot anyways. And there's honestly, it's about, I think, status. It's yeah, literally exactly. like somebody want to show off their watch. So they go buy gold, yellow, ugly gold yeah. watch because they think that puts them into. I literally think that's what it is. I think that people that are. Uh, have experienced proper Ibiza and 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 on dancing in DC ten and and they they feel like well we've done this for ten years we are the experts and the pros while you guys you're just getting started you don't even know who exactly. Dixon is or yeah. a history of Circa Loco mm. instead of saying hey you know your music is cool but you should check out what we do you're gonna love it let's like do it all together so I think that's what it is I, I you know but I think it's it's really gonna the younger generation is not like that. I think the younger generation is a lot more welcoming and opening, and I think they're going to fix that issue. I think what I've always found in America is that the the crowds in America that go to parties are a lot more open-minded compared to more so in Europe, UK and Europe. Um, I'm not too sure why that is, but I, I know that there's people that come and see me play and they go and see Seth Troxler play and then they go and see Tiesto play. And there's, there's not as much like snobbery as there is in the UK and Europe. It's still here. Um, but I think it's really important that this, that this happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, electric zoo was a good platform to watch this where people would come in being Armin and Buren fans and they would stay there on the main stage and they would see Eric Pritz and then they would kind of go to Carl Cox and then from Carl Cox, they would kind of go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> the house music. And for that reason, those people, they'll always love Armin Van Buren. They'll always love above and beyond or Eric yeah. Pritz or those guys. So they will go to the festival and do, they'll do everyone. Mm. But, but the fans that used to go to Marco Corolla in New York, where all Marco could do sell 200 tickets in some basement, they always felt that they are too cool for that. Yeah. So they weren't going to go to like a Dirty Bird party. Yeah. And the, whatever reasons in their head they had for that, that was delusional. They mm. made it up. Like there was no real reason, right? Dirty Bird parties were amazing. And, yeah. But but that was kind of the that degree of separation that I think is now is getting lesser and lesser and the gray area there's a reason why we wanted to, to call gray area yeah. is like no boundaries you know like we don't care what it's called the bass house deep house nobody fucking knows what the music is called anymore yeah you know people ask me like how do you qualify this i, I don't know what it's called anymore bassy house bassy tech house techie bass house like you know i i don't know yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think this is really important. And it's it's nice that somebody's, it's, it's not an issue per se, but I think what is happening is people is people are missing out on really good experiences. And I think by creating something that allows people to experience more, we all become richer in knowledge and experience, which makes us all better people. Yeah, and it'll elevate, you know, house music to the the scale it's never seen, and then sky's the limit, honestly. Mm -hmm. Because right now my kids are playing Fortnite, and they're seeing like Travis Scott concerts in Fortnite. I say in two years it's gonna be a house music there. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in the UK it would be house music on Fortnite, 
Um, whereas over here you have this, it's not even a competition. Hip hop just takes over. Um, it's just, what do you, do you see in North America house music ever being able to take over hip hop? Who knows? Or live beside, because they don't even live beside at this moment in time. Yeah, I, listen, what's happened now is that people that were listening, people that would go to VAP clubs, let's call them, to buy bottles and tables and listen to hip-hop, are now sitting at Nick Fanciulli's parties going like this. Yeah. You know, they're like, it, it's trans. Yeah. As long as it's becoming trendy, people switch. You know, yes. it's all music, right? You can love hip hop and house together. You know, it's. Uh, mm. I think it's always going to be the trendsetters that will kind of, you know, if, if the VIP clubs are starting to play house music, suddenly people that used to listen to hip hop will, will listen to house music. Mm, totally. How important would you say for artists, big, like up and coming, big, large, of all sizes, to kind of grow? marketing so you know i've seen a lot of artists disappear and then, then i've seen a lot of people artists you know grow the fan bases over the years i've come to my point of view is that the only thing that should matter for artists are the actual fans not the streams on spotify not nothing should matter except for actual fans because real fans will never leave you like in context the way i see and look about it is you know depeche mode the u2 had the fans uh, you know a 17 year old fan now that that fan is 40 they're no less of a fan of yeah. those bands the exactly. same goes for our music you know when people love you they will never bail on you they'll always be a true fan if it's a one-hit wonder uh, track that has 1 billion plays on Spotify, that means absolutely nothing. Now, to be fair, in our world, you get that billion play song, you might be rich and you might get a lot of touring and and things, but I don't know how sustainable that is because somebody else will make a different track. So I think for the artists, the most important thing on marketing side is to build a stronger relationship with the fans that are there true followers because those are the fans that tell every time you release new music your best fans are the ones that listen to it and mm -hmm. then share that with their friends and for as long as you have those fans you will always grow mm -hmm. it's just you know like think about it the song came out they text the song came out he texted but if you don't have that base mm -hmm. and all that you had was hype over big track then those same people they listen to other tracks and i i don't think it's sustainable I don't know if that answers your questions. I guess, yeah. yeah, no, it does. I guess realistically, it's about building a core fan base and growing yeah. that. So, what would you say the the best way for for a new artists to build a, a core fan base on the marketing side of things, rather than taking the music out of it? It's like, okay, this is this is a brand new artist. How how would you work it? In today's world, I would capture content and then figure out how to distribute this content to the right people. Because what I've noticed over the past few years, once it's become popular to capture little video clips and put it on, on, on Instagram, is that I was able to instantly identify future stars. It's insane. Yeah. So I kid you not, like 
when I saw Michael Beebe's thing at uh, Sao Paulo, you know, at some point, I don't know how many years ago it was, and I saw that energy and I saw how he was, I, I'm like, okay, this guy is going to be a star. Mm. So I think if you capture the, the content from the shows, when you play, it does capture some of this energy, believe it or not. And if you can distribute it to the right people, which in today's world, it's kind of easy. Yeah, you, you post it. And unfortunately, Facebook uh, holds you hostages. And until you pay it, it's not going to really show it. But mm. you pay it. You pay it. And then what you are doing is you're allowing for the fans that are already fans of artists like you to mm. see your craft. And I think that's how you capture their attention. And then from that point on, it's just about staying connected with this, those fans. And what I had a lot of disagreements with this off season, so to speak, with my artist friends is the value of live streams. I completely disagree that live streams are not special if you do them too often. I don't think that anybody should care how many people are on the other side. Rather, they should say that whoever is listening, I'm making their day better. They're dancing or they're grooving or even they're working and listening. And you just keep going. And after the pandemic was over, clearly what I was saying made some sense because there are some artists that were, I don't want to call them small, but you know, they weren't able to sell thousands of tickets that are now selling out stadiums. Yeah. And I really contribute that to a year of live streams because it built yeah. real communities. It connected people together in difficult times. And the fact that now that we are back in normal world and the live streams are not important is to me, it's crazy. I mm. think they're even more important. And I think that there's going to be an integration of gaming, VR, AR, NFTs, live events, live entertainment will change. I don't know exactly how it will change, but it will change the way we know it. Mm. You know, people will come with NFTs, not tickets. And NFT is going to be an access to a backstage. And after the festival, they're going to get, you know, some kind of... Uh, after movie pinned to their digital wallet you yeah. know and there'll be vr situation where people at home who can't travel to the show will be able to hear the sets and see it yeah i i think staying engaged with the audience is the way for the artist to grow consistently perfect do it people dude i've got to wrap this up um and i feel like i could speak to you for fucking hours about everything um Thank I'm you. a dangerous interview because I don't think. And so whatever I said, hopefully I didn't offend too many people. No, it was perfect. That. I absolutely loved it. Um, how can people go get involved with your community, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's enter gray area on Instagram. The domain is grayarea.co. So G-R-A-Y-A-R-E-A.co. And, um, you know, if you want to see me cook food, medium quality cooking uh the one and only on instagram um, i welcome everyone to tune into my life and feel bad for my struggles <laughs> <laughs> legend man thank you so much for being on um catch you very Thanks soon for having me, brother. My big pleasure. love dude big love and that is a wrap i hope you enjoyed it um share it subscribe send it to everyone keep safe see you next time